Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of kidnapping, murder, mutilation, and possible sexual assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the 1950s, America saw the rise of something that had never really existed before, teenage culture. This was the time of poodle skirts, soda parlors, and Elvis Presley. The word teenager was just entering the lexicon, but these young adults had more freedom and power than ever before. Companies specifically marketed products to teenagers, which meant high schoolers were anxious to make money. And for teenage girls, there seemed to be only one job option, babysitting. It was a great way to get some pocket change, but it didn't come without problems. More and more often, babysitters were the subjects of creepy stories, real crimes, and perhaps something even more sinister, sexualization. Beginning in the 1950s, books and films turned babysitters into sexual objects. In one 1969 movie simply titled The Babysitter, a teenage girl pursued a sexual relationship with her employer. The film made it seem like adolescent girls actually seduced grown men. I wanted to try you out to see what it would be like. The Babysitter. Don't let her in your house unless you want real trouble. But the movie was written and directed by adult men. Subsequently, babysitters were increasingly viewed as temptresses. They were seen as the problem, while men who sexualized them got off scot-free. And sometimes the men who killed teenage girls got off without punishment, too. In Wisconsin in 1953, a 15-year-old babysitter went missing. Her abductor and likely murderer was never brought to justice. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode in a special three-part series on babysitters. For three weeks, we're diving into the history of babysitting in American culture. We'll explore how babysitters became the subjects of urban legends, slasher films, and real-life crimes. This week, we'll discuss how babysitters became seen as sexual objects. We'll also investigate the disappearance of 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley, a Wisconsin babysitter who was abducted in 1953 and has never been heard from again. It's possible that she was the victim of one of the most notorious killers in United States history. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When babysitting first became a common practice, it ignited anxieties among parents. They worried about whether or not teenage girls could be trusted to watch their children. The general consensus seemed to be that adolescents cared more about themselves than the kids they were hired to oversee. But soon the archetype of the untrustworthy sitter shifted. In the 1950s, books and movies started presenting babysitters as objects of sexual desire. In some cases, relationships between adolescent girls and middle-aged men were portrayed as consensual. Of course, this wasn't realistic. According to anecdotes and interviews from the time period, it wasn't uncommon for teenage girls to have to reject advances from adult male employers. Though widely normalized, this kind of sexualization was predatory and could be threatening to a girl's emotional and physical health. But how girls felt really didn't matter. After all, they weren't the ones telling the stories. Men were. Vladimir Nabokov, a man in his 50s, published the infamous novel Lolita around this time. It featured a middle-aged male narrator who sexualized, manipulated, and repeatedly assaulted a 12-year-old girl. Lolita was a victim of sexual abuse and yet her name became synonymous with the word temptress. Something similar happened with babysitters. They were the objects of male fantasies. But instead of holding men responsible for sexualizing teenagers, girls got blamed. They were seen as immoral and promiscuous. Worst of all, some men took it upon themselves to punish what they perceived as teenage girls' character flaws. And this is where slasher films come in. According to Miriam Foreman Brunel's book, Babysitter, An American History, babysitters became the target of punishing discipline. Horrific figures came forward to tame the temptress. The faceless movie maniac in the many horror movies that included babysitters knew no bounds. His victims would get what they deserved. But these monsters didn't just exist in films. They were real, and in 1953, one of them showed up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. October 24th, 1953, was homecoming night at La Crosse State College. 40-year-old Vigo Rasmussen and his wife wanted to go to the big football game, but their usual babysitter was unavailable. They needed to find someone new to watch their 20-month-old daughter, Janice. Rasmussen knew that one of his colleagues, Richard Hartley, had a 15-year-old daughter named Evelyn. He called the Hartley home to see if Evelyn would be willing to babysit. Hello? Hi, Evelyn. It's Mr. Rasmussen. I wanted to see if you were planning to go to the homecoming game tonight. Um, no. I've got a lot of studying to do. Why? I was hoping you might come watch Janice for the evening. Oh. 
You'd still be able to study, of course. Janice's bedtime is 7.30. Oh, okay. Sure. I'd be happy to. Oh, fantastic. I'll pick you up around 6. Evelyn told her parents she'd be babysitting for the Rasmussens that night. They didn't mind, but Evelyn's father had one request. He asked her to call him around 8.30 p.m. to check in. Evelyn agreed, and at approximately 6 p.m., she hopped into Vigo Rasmussen's car. The pair drove across town. The Rasmussens lived in a modest home with a basement and a garage. It was in the middle of an average neighborhood not unlike Evelyn's own. She felt perfectly safe. Mr. Rasmussen showed Evelyn around the house. Then he grabbed his keys and told Evelyn that he and his wife would be back after the game. Evelyn looked at baby Janice. She couldn't deny the toddler was cute. The pair played peekaboo until Evelyn decided it was time to study. She put Janice to bed in the crib and then flipped open one of the textbooks she'd brought with her. Janice babbled, not quite ready to fall asleep, but Evelyn barely noticed her. The 15-year-old was too deep in her schoolwork. Five minutes passed, then 15, then 30. But then, at about 7 p.m., a neighbor heard somebody scream. Honey, did you hear that? Uh, It's probably just some kids playing outside. Around 8 p.m., another neighbor saw a light-colored car circling through the neighborhood. Finally, at 8.30 p.m., Evelyn Hartley's father watched his telephone. He waited for his daughter to check in with him, but she never did. He called the Rasmussen's home, and no one answered. Mr. Hartley's heart sped up. It wasn't like Evelyn to forget to check in, and she definitely wouldn't ignore a phone call. She was smart, responsible. He couldn't help but feel like something was wrong. So he didn't waste any time. He drove straight to the Rasmussen's house. There he found all the lights on. The doors were locked. Through the window, he saw baby Janice was asleep in her crib, totally unharmed. Although Janice looked peaceful, the rest of the house did not. The living room furniture was in disarray. Evelyn's textbooks were scattered on the floor. One of her shoes looked like it had been thrown across the room. Her glasses, which she always wore, lay broken on the carpet. Frantic, Mr. Hartley called for his daughter. Evelyn! Evelyn! He ran from window to window, searching for her. He didn't see her anywhere. He sprinted across the yard, hoping to find more clues as to where his daughter could be. About a hundred feet from the Rasmussen's home, Mr. Hartley spied a small garage. On the outside of the garage, about four feet off the ground, there was a bloody handprint. It was small and thin, a petite girl's palm. Evelyn's palm. Mr. Hartley couldn't do anything else except call the police. Coming up, authorities investigate Evelyn Hartley's disappearance. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. 
Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. On October 24th, 1953, 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley babysat for Professor Vigo Rasmussen in La Crosse, Wisconsin. When Evelyn didn't check in with her father at 8.30 p.m., he drove to the Rasmussen's home. He found 20-month-old baby Janice unharmed, but Evelyn was nowhere to be found. There were signs that something terrible had happened. The living room was a disaster. Evelyn's glasses had been broken, and there was a bloody handprint on the outside of the Rasmussen's garage. When La Crosse police arrived, they found even more disturbing evidence. Hey, come down here. What is it? Basement window's been pried open. There's a stepladder just outside it, and there are footprints all the way into the living room. This is where they broke in. Oh, God. It's definitely a kidnapping. You want to tell her dad that? <sighs> Somebody has to. Mr. Hartley already knew something awful had happened to his daughter, but the police confirmed his worst fears. Evelyn was gone, and the more clues they found, the bleaker the situation seemed. There wasn't just blood on the outside of the garage. There were two separate pools of it in the Rasmussen's yard one of which measured over a foot in diameter. A quick test confirmed that the blood matched Evelyn's type. In all likelihood, it was hers. And if that wasn't bad enough, police also found Evelyn's underwear lying in the grass just east of the Rasmussen's house. To police, all the evidence formed a macabre picture. The attacker broke in through the basement window. They must have snuck upstairs and surprised Evelyn. There's clear evidence of a struggle. They fought and Evelyn lost her shoes and glasses. The attacker dragged her outside. Something happened that resulted in Evelyn bleeding. Maybe a cut or a blow. Whatever it was, she was still conscious. She probably ran towards the garage, hoping to escape, but the attacker caught up with her. At that point, they might have struck her in the head or in some way caused her to lose consciousness. The presence of underwear makes sexual assault seem likely. The pools of blood were probably left behind when the attacker sat her down, which happened twice. As for where they went, well, I'm not quite sure. Crucially, police left open the possibility that Evelyn was still alive. She'd lost a lot of blood, but that didn't mean she died. At that point in the investigation, they still hope to bring Evelyn home. So in an attempt to figure out where the kidnapper took her, officers brought in tracker dogs. The hounds traced Evelyn's scent two blocks northeast of the Rasmussen's home, then abruptly lost it. 
to officers, this suggested that Evelyn's attacker had carried her two blocks up the road, then gotten into a car with her and fled. This idea was corroborated by neighbors. One person had heard screaming around 7 p.m., and one had seen a suspicious car about an hour later. Unfortunately, neither person could offer more information. Mr. and Mrs. Hartley didn't sleep at all that night. The next morning, October 25th, a massive search party ensued. Over 1,000 volunteers, including members of the U.S. Air Force, combed through every square inch of La Crosse. They couldn't find any trace of the girl or her attacker. But the next day, a potential witness came forward. His name was Ed Hoffer. He said that shortly after 7 p.m. on the night of Evelyn's disappearance, he'd seen two large men speeding away from the Rasmussen's home in a car with a young girl in the back seat. Can you describe the vehicle? Oh, sure. It was a green Buick, probably a 41 or 42. Mm -hmm. And what did the people inside look like? There were two men. One was in the front seat driving. I couldn't really say much about him because I didn't think anything of it at the time. But in the back seat, now this stood out to me. It was another man. He had a girl next to him, and it almost looked like he was struggling to hold her up. She was slumped forward with her head against the front seats. I remember thinking she looked real tired, or maybe sick. Do you have any idea where the car was headed? I'm sorry, no. I just assumed they were all going to the homecoming game. Hoffer's statement was huge. If he'd really seen Evelyn in the backseat of the car, then officers had two crucial pieces of information. First, there were two kidnappers. Second, they drove a green Buick. Maybe they'd be able to track Evelyn down after all. So officers implemented a vehicle inspection program. They examined hundreds of cars in the La Crosse area, searching for blood stains. Once a vehicle had been cleared, the driver was given a sticker that read, my car is okay. Soon enough, practically every automobile in La Crosse had this macabre message proudly displayed on its bumper. Police never found the green Buick Ed Hoffer mentioned, and they didn't identify any other suspicious vehicles either. But a few days later, search parties uncovered some unsettling evidence. About two miles outside of La Crosse, near a highway intersection, they found a bloodstained bra. They couldn't know for sure if it was Evelyn's, but it certainly didn't bode well. Four miles further down the same road, searchers found a bloodied pair of men's pants. Southwest of La Crosse, they discovered two blood-stained sneakers. A few hundred feet away from the shoes was a well-worn men's denim jacket. It had dark red marks on the front, back, and sleeves. The pants could have been a coincidence, but the shoes and jacket weren't. The tread on the bottom of the shoes matches the prints you found at the crime scene. The blood also matches the puddles that were outside. It's Evelyn's type. What about the jacket? Same blood type. These are the kidnappers' clothes. It's a lot of blood. Yeah. You think... You think she could bleed that much and still be alive? It's hard to say. These two items of clothing, the shoes and the jacket, became detectives' primary pieces of evidence. Investigators believed the items would point towards the kidnappers, but they also suggested something less positive. 
Evelyn Hartley had lost even more blood than previously thought. If officers hoped to find her alive, they needed to hurry. So they figured out what the clothing could tell them about the attackers. The sneakers were size 11 and from a brand called Goodrich. Authorities went to the manufacturers of the shoes and found that the specific design was sold in Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, and Illinois. That didn't exactly narrow down the possibilities. However, a few other discoveries did. The shoes had a unique round pattern on the soles. Authorities guessed that this was caused by riding on a Wizard brand motorbike. Other patterns of wear suggested that whoever wore the shoes frequently operated machinery, possibly in a factory or in construction. And to make things even more interesting, the impressions on the soles of the shoes suggested they'd been worn by two different people. One of the wearer's feet were too big for the sneakers. Perhaps two people were sharing the shoes. Or maybe Evelyn's kidnapper purposely wore sneakers that weren't his size. He might have anticipated leaving behind footprints and wore smaller shoes to conceal his identity. As for the jacket, it was a size 36 and had marks running underneath both armpits. To detectives, it looked like wear from some kind of safety harness, further supporting the hypothesis that the kidnappers worked in a factory setting. And according to investigators, it was very improbable that the shoes and the jacket were worn by the same person. Size 11 shoes were above average, while a size 36 jacket was relatively small. In all likelihood, the sneakers belonged to one kidnapper, the denim to another. All things considered, it seemed like a pretty good start. La Crosse police knew they were looking for two men who probably worked in manual labor. One man was likely taller and larger than the other. In addition to the ongoing search for clues, detectives embarked on a massive tour. They'd traveled the city, the county, and even the whole state. They'd question as many people as they had to. They'd bring Evelyn Hartley home. Led by Sheriff Ivan Wright, authorities traveled to 31 different communities in and around La Crosse, Wisconsin. They showed the denim jacket to roughly 10,000 people. Not a single person knew who it belonged to. Nobody admitted they knew, anyway. The more time passed, the less likely it seemed that Evelyn would be found alive. Police were getting scared and desperate. They didn't know where else to look for answers. In February of 1954, about four months after Evelyn's disappearance, Sheriff Ivan Wright died of a heart attack. Some people claimed it was brought on by the stress of the case, which was beginning to look unsolvable. What are we supposed to do? We've got evidence, but none of it goes anywhere. We've got no sheriff, no leads, no Evelyn. We just have to keep looking. We have to keep asking questions. It doesn't matter how many questions we ask. There's someone around here who knows what happened to Evelyn, and they've got their lips sealed. Kidnappers aren't exactly the most truthful people. Well, there is one option. What? You're not going to like it. Just say it, will you? Lie detector tests. Oh. With no other options, La Crosse police resorted to using lie detector tests. Even in 1953, it was widely known that polygraphs were prone to mistakes and that they wouldn't hold up as evidence in court. Employing them was a last-ditch effort to find information. 
Beginning in May of 1954, six months after Evelyn's disappearance, officers tested around 300 people. Nothing concrete came of this tedious work. By the one-year anniversary of Evelyn's kidnapping, La Crosse police had tested, interrogated, or questioned over 4,000 people. Throughout all this, a number of suspects arose and were systematically ruled out. Nobody was ever charged. But three years later, in 1957, a new suspect came into consideration. This man checked two very important boxes. Firstly, he was in La Crosse on the night of Evelyn's disappearance. In fact, he was from La Crosse, meaning he knew the town well enough to slip away from a crime scene using back roads. And secondly, he was beyond violent. He'd been arrested after kidnapping, murdering, and mutilating a Wisconsin woman named Bernice Warden. When police investigated his home, they found a trove of horrors, including furniture and clothing made out of human body parts. The man was serial killer Ed Gein, otherwise known as the Butcher of Plainfield. Coming up, we'll examine whether Evelyn Hartley was the victim of one of America's most notorious murderers. And now, back to our story. In October of 1953, 15-year-old babysitter Evelyn Hartley disappeared from La Crosse, Wisconsin. After four years of investigation, law enforcement had questioned thousands of people discovered a few pieces of physical evidence, and identified numerous potential suspects. But ultimately, none of these clues led anywhere. By 1957, Evelyn was still missing, and few people believed she'd ever be found. Then in November of that same year, a possible suspect arose. His name was Edward Theodore Gein, and he was one of the most grisly killers the United States had ever seen. Police in Plainfield, Wisconsin, a town about 100 miles east of La Crosse, arrested 51-year-old Ed Gein on suspicion of murder. He'd been implicated in the death of a hardware store owner named Bernice Warden. While a pair of officers questioned him, others searched his Plainfield farmhouse. Ugh, looks like Mr. Gein's not much of a cleaner. This furniture is weird. It's like homemade leather or something. Oh, geez. Look at this lamp. The shade looks like a face. How long did this guy live here? There's so many boxes. It's like he moved in and never unpacked. Oh. Oh, God. What is it? I... It's a head. A whole head. Inside Ed Gein's house... Detectives found chairs covered in human skin, lampshades made out of people's faces, and boxes of body parts. Somehow, that wasn't even the worst of it. They also found Bernice Warden's mutilated body inside of Gein's shed. Some of her organs were in his refrigerator, and her heart sat on his stove. There was no question that Ed Gein was a killer. During their interrogation, police also surmised that he was a grave robber and possibly engaged in cannibalism and necrophilia. To top it all off, officers discovered that Gein was in La Crosse on the night of Evelyn Hartley's disappearance. 
He'd been visiting family mere blocks from the Rasmussen's home. Suddenly, he became authorities' number one suspect. You were in La Crosse on October 24th, 1953? Ah, uh, yes. A teenage girl went missing that night. Evelyn Hartley. I got a feeling you might know something about her. Oh. Oh, no. T teenagers, no. There's a lot of skeletons in your closet, Ed. Literally. I've never heard the name Evelyn. You didn't read it in the papers? She's been all over the news for years now. Ah, uh, I don't read the papers. We've got people searching your house, Ed. It's sick the kind of stuff you've got in there. You can either tell us where Evelyn is now, or we'll keep digging until we find her. You're not gonna find her. Ed Gein was right. Authorities searched his entire home. Every square foot held some fresh horror, but Evelyn Hartley's remains were nowhere to be found. Again, authorities resorted to using a lie detector test. Gein underwent two polygraphs regarding Evelyn's disappearance, and he passed both. Police didn't have enough to charge him with the kidnapping. In fact, they couldn't even send him to jail. Ultimately, Ed Gein was found unfit to stand trial, ruled not guilty by reason of insanity, and sentenced to spend the rest of his life in a maximum security psychiatric facility. Gein died from complications of cancer in 1984 at the age of 77. His entire life, he maintained that he had nothing to do with Evelyn Hartley's disappearance. Still, he was never entirely cleared, and many people consider him a viable suspect. Unfortunately, Ed Gein's death meant the investigation into Evelyn's kidnapping had reached a standstill. It had been 31 years since the 15-year-old disappeared. Hope had been all but extinguished. Even Evelyn's mother and father had to accept that they would never see their daughter again. Years continued to pass. Both of Evelyn's parents passed away. The detectives who worked on her case retired. Evelyn Hartley sank into the past. Until 2004. In August of that year, a man named Mel Williams told police he might have caught one of the kidnappers' confessions on tape. Williams said that sometime in the late 1960s and early 1970s, he'd owned a tavern in Lafarge, Wisconsin, a small town about 40 miles southeast of La Crosse. One night, a man named Clyde Peterson sat at the bar and ordered a beer. Williams had served Peterson drinks many times before. He was a regular at the tavern, and Williams liked when he came by. He was always making people laugh. That evening, Peterson was cracking jokes. Williams thought he was so funny that he started up his tape recorder. He asked Peterson questions and caught his hilarious answers on tape. Then one of Peterson's friends, a local mink farmer, took a seat at the bar. All of a sudden, the conversation got a lot less funny. <laughs> Oh, my word. Clyde, you're too much. <laughs> hey, Clyde, tell them about that Hartley girl you kidnapped. <laughs> oh, Whitey. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, Williams, you ever know a guy named Jack Gullfair? Uh, I knew of him. Oh, me and him. <laughs> me and him kidnapped that girl. Remember the one who was all over the news? Yeah, I... I remember. Oh my god. 
Uh, we took her out to the farm and Jack killed her. He what? He killed her. <laughs> he killed her. Peterson's confession was chilling. But for some reason that still hasn't been adequately explained, Mel Williams waited approximately 35 years to bring the tape to police. By that time, both Clyde Peterson and his alleged accomplice, Jack Golfair, were dead. There was no chance of an arrest, but there might have been a possibility of closure. On the tape, Peterson gave the approximate location of Evelyn Hartley's body. In 2004, an article published in the Journal Gazette and Times Courier said police were searching for Evelyn's remains and comparing samples of Peterson and Golfair's DNA with blood found at the Rasmussen's home. Sadly, no further information was ever publicized. Maybe the tape was a dead end, or perhaps just too much time had passed. It's possible that Williams purposely kept the recordings hidden until after Peterson and Golfair died. That way, the men could never be prosecuted or seek revenge against the person who spilled their violent secret. But there might be one more clue inside the story. Jack Golfair died by suicide ten years after Evelyn Hartley's disappearance. Maybe he couldn't live with the guilt of what he'd done. Although Evelyn Hartley's case is still technically open, most people, her surviving family included, don't believe she'll be found alive. Detectives almost always treat her case as a murder investigation. Still, La Crosse police keep her dental records on file. One day, they might be able to use these to identify her remains. And, unsurprisingly, theories about Evelyn's apparent death abound. Some people still blame Ed Gein, while others think Mel Williams' tape is definitive evidence against Clyde Peterson and Jack Golfair. There's also people who hypothesize that Evelyn was kidnapped by a drifter, or that she was killed after someone attempted to rob the Rasmussen's home. It's difficult to find solid footing among all of these different theories. Still... I think Clyde Peterson and Jack Golfair are the most likely culprits. Locals reported seeing two men near the Rasmussen's home, and Peterson openly admitted to the crime. It's possible that after the tape recording ended, he'd threatened Mel Williams into 35 years of silence. I agree. The theory about Ed Gein seems convincing at first, but he wasn't known to target teenagers. It's still possible that he kidnapped Evelyn, but it would be outside of his usual M.O. Plus, none of Evelyn's remains were found in Gein's home. Police cleared him for a reason. In all likelihood, Peterson and Golfair are responsible. Evelyn's kidnapping was part of a larger social and cultural trend that saw adult men targeting teenage girls. As crimes of this kind became more and more common, they appeared in horror books and movies. Soon enough, the victimized babysitter became a classic slasher film trope. Most often, the monster broke into a home to terrorize his young victims. That's what happened to Jeanette Christman and Evelyn Hartley. But one real-life crime turned this trope on its head. In April of 1981, a killer struck in rural Alberta, Canada. Instead of forcing his way into his victim's house, he lured her outside. 
Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with the third and final episode of our Babysitter's Special. We'll explore babysitters as a classic horror movie trope and investigate one of Alberta, Canada's most infamous murders. For more information on Evelyn Hartley, among the many sources we used, we found the Charlie Project's profile on her disappearance extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Brian Green, Harris Markson, Cameron Nicod, and Kimlin Tran. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.